The internet is not a thing. The internet is a phenomenon. This is episode 216 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Welcome, I'm Lisa Gonzalez. Just three weeks ago, we introduced you to Fred Goldstein, principal of Interisle Consulting. He and Chris had an in-depth discussion about past FCC decisions that have influenced where we are now as we consider the question, what is the internet? Well, Fred is back again with more on history and how our perspective of the Internet, both upper and lowercase i, has and will influence innovation. Check out Fred's firm at interisle.net to learn more about their work and about Fred's extensive experience in telecommunications. Now here are Fred and Chris. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Chris Mitchell, and today I'm returning with Fred Goldstein, a principal of the Inter-Isle Consulting Group. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Chris. Glad to be here. We're having you back to continue our discussion. Um, previously, we got into a, long, a longer history of how we got to uh, the Internet. I think in some ways the telecommunications policies that allowed the Internet to develop. And when we finished, you had just told us what the Internet is. Now, I wonder if you wouldn't mind just briefly reminding people what the Internet is. Sure. I define an Internet as a voluntary agreement between network operators to exchange traffic for their mutual benefit. And voluntary means it's like a real business, not a monopoly, not regulated. They agree on the prices. They haggle on prices. They interconnect how they want, when they want, for prices they can agree to. And they exchange traffic for their mutual benefit, but it's not the underlying network. The Internet is the computer-mediated interconnection between networks, and the networks are a higher layer than telecommunications, which is the raw exchange of bits. Now, I wonder if conceptually, would it make sense to think of this as, um, in a metaphor, uh, traffic is not the road, right? Traffic is the things on the road. And if the roads were telecommunications, the internet would be traffic, um, as we think of our daily commutes and things like that. That's a very good analogy. The idea being that Right. The Internet is the cars riding on a road and the road is the telecom layer and the vertically integrated model we have now is that Interstate 90 has become the Chevrolet highway and only Chevrolets are able to use it. Right. And so when it comes to the Internet, I think and this is uh, something that I've been railing about because it drives me nuts that uh, the AP style manual has stopped making it uh, capital. But when we talk about the Internet, is there really one major Internet at this point or, you know, am I thinking of it incorrectly? Some people don't know whether Internet is uppercase or lowercase. The answer is there is an internet uppercase called the internet capital I is a prototype. There is one public internet that we call the internet capital I. This is like, there are a lot of country clubs where, you know, rich folk around the country hang out. But uh, in Brookline, Massachusetts, there is the country club and the country club was founded in the 19th century. And it was, you know, caught on other Rich people around the country said, we'll open our own country clubs, and they use the term country club generically. And it's the same thing with Internet. There is one original Internet, but there can be other Internets. Well, at least 
there can if the telecommunications is made available. One of the problems with the FCC's understanding is that they think that all progress halts when the internet happened. The internet is a essentially finished model and all you need to do is turn up the speed of the access pipes and magic just continues to get better. But that's ridiculous. The internet was an always an evolving technology and it's based on early 1970s ideas. TCP IP was specified first, TCP 1974, IP version 4, the only version that works, 1978. <laughs> yes. And so, you know, people talk about evolving the phone network from old TDM to new IP. IP is older than TDM. They're going backwards. <laughs> IP was a lab hack that demonstrated certain principles, but it's not an ideal protocol. This is something that I always think about. From my days, I used to program, and um, and one of the things that I learned early on was that a lot of times when you think, this will just get me from A to B, and then I'll do something better, you never come back. You're always stuck with that barely working bridge, and that's IP in many ways, although it's gotten us quite far. <laughs> it's gotten us far, but it's gotten us far with such brute force. You know, It's a monoculture that people are taught. But you know, if you actually objectively look at it, you realize it's a 1970s lab hack that grew out of control. And that's why we don't have adequate security. It was not designed for security. It was designed to be a closed network, that security by who's allowed to attach, right. not the public. Security or privacy, for that matter, which are related but not necessarily the same. Absolutely. And why it doesn't provide reliable quality of service, it wasn't designed to. There was a telephone network at the time, and it was explicitly designed not to compete with it. So, so you have all these variations where the, you know, the Internet's being used for things it wasn't designed to do. So one can certainly posit other Internets, and there are other Internets private companies and industries. Just to give an example, uh, you know, we've heard of the SWIFT network that the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Transfer uh, recently got hacked. It's an extremely secure network, but a bank in Bangladesh got hacked, giving hackers the ability to use SWIFT to steal money. But the SWIFT network is, in effect, a private internet of the banking industry worldwide that uses its own techniques to be extremely secure. And that's one of the parts of that is it's very closed access. Airlines have closed internet. When you have multiple companies exchanging data with one another, that's an internet. The big eye public internet is the one that benefits from worldwide access. So that's where you put public things. I work with public safety clients who run a private internet. So the, you know, the fire and police departments don't want their traffic exposed to the public. There are you know, very carefully controlled gateways for logging in uh, VPNs between the two, but it's a private internet. And many, many public safety agencies around the country and around the world and other government agencies build private internets. Uh, so, so sure, it's not that there's one internet, but there is one the internet, which is the big one that is the most insecure. To imagine a second big internet or a second very large public internet is almost inconceivable because if you were trying to build something like that, at some point I think you'd want to interconnect to the larger internet, uh, the original big internet, and at that point you would be a part of the big internet. Uh, it depends on how you connect. The, the, the thing is, if you were to build 
another internet, it wouldn't be using the same wide open policies and wide open protocols. So you'd connect, but you'd probably connect through gateways that gave secure, limited interconnection. Essentially, by definition, when you can exchange raw IP packets, you're on the same internet. And so if you want to have another internet, you might want to be able to exchange email, but you may have to go through a gateway uh, that would be a secure process. I think security is really the key feature, but also it could be that the other internet is using different protocols. So let's let's talk about one of my um, uh, grammar kind of usage uh, bugaboos that drives me nuts and people who work with me, I think, and annoyed with me ranting about it, which is that when people talk about how like uh, we want the government to implement policies for fast internet or we have problems with slow internet, it always drives me nuts, and I always want to make it very clear. We're talking about Internet access because the Internet itself is not fast or slow. It's, as you described it, it's something else. It's this, it's this agreement to exchange traffic, and, and that in and of itself is not fast or slow. When we talk about fast or slow, we're talking about the telecommunications networks that are supposed to be a different level and just transporting bits. Is, am I getting that right? Precisely. Telecommunications facilities have a speed. The internet is not a thing. The internet is a phenomenon. The internet is the phenomenon that results from these agreements to exchange traffic. And so a phenomenon doesn't have a specific speed. I mean, there are physical phenomena that do, but the internet doesn't. The individual components have their own speed. And that's why you know, end-to-end speed is, is so variable. Because to get from your ISP to wherever you're going, you don't know what path you're taking. The path may be variable. It may be crossing five different providers' networks. The Internet wants to be able to route around damage automatically. And the way it does that means you can't tell for sure how you're getting from one place to another. Even if you trace route, it can change in the two different directions are taking different paths in many cases. So how can you predict end to end? But that's the beauty of it. It was never the promise. The internet never promised a speed. The internet merely promises best efforts connectivity. Best efforts, by the way, in quotes. I call that B-E-S-Q-R, best efforts, scare quotes required service. Not making a guarantee. Not what a lawyer would call best efforts. It's just we try to get packets and we try to get them from end to end. And if it works, great. And if it doesn't, we're sorry. And that works very well most of the time. So you can't guarantee speeds on the internet. If you did, you would be providing more like telecom because that means you're reserving facilities, reserving capacity. But the internet doesn't reserve capacity. So let's talk about where the FCC um, may have um, gone wrong in terms of its net neutrality rules, because it seems to me that uh, the goal of many net neutrality advocates is to maintain this separation between the telecommunications facilities and the uh, the content um, and the internet effectively. Um, but um, you know, you've argued persuasively that the FCC didn't do it in the, the best manner possible. Where did it go wrong? Well, they went wrong because they didn't understand the layered model of the Internet. Now, I don't mean the layered model of the TCP stack, of the TCP layer, and the yada yada, because TCP stack is not a layered model. TCP IP is not an actual layered protocol stack. It's a single integrated protocol entity from application protocol down to the IP layer. That's its architecture. It's not layered internally because there are 
IP addresses visible in the application layer and at the API, the sockets layer. That's a mistake in the architecture, but that means it's not a layered architecture. I think some just a few people would benefit from talking about why layers are important. And I, in my mind, layers are important because then they're separable. You can change them around with different approaches that might be better. Um, and you can change one layer without impacting another. Um, is, that, is that why layers are just important for understanding this? Well, it's important because it allows us to distinguish who has what role and what is the proper way to regulate something. If you have layers, you can understand how a layer behaves and regulate it appropriately. But if you don't understand how the layering works, it's very hard to regulate it appropriately because the actual phenomena that are the Internet don't line up with the FCC's view of how the phenomena work. Okay, so please continue then. Okay, so essentially the way it worked and the way the Internet came about was that there was this distinction between enhanced service and basic service from the computer inquiries, going back especially to CI2 in 1980, that said the phone companies had to make the basic telecommunications available to everyone. They could offer DSL, but other ISPs could as well. And that meant that the Internet was competitive. If you didn't like your ISP, you could change your ISP. No one thought of regulating ISP behavior in 1997. You know, nobody mm -hmm. talked about regulating these services because they were all clearly computer services, enhanced services, information services, pick your term, that ran over telecommunications. And so – you had competition, market forces. The ISP could change. I mean, there was no neutrality in AOL. It was a time-sharing service, literally a time-shared computer service, where web browsing was one of the things that their terminal could do when they first offered this in you know, the 1995 timeframe. And anyone who wanted to build a competing service could just order that from the telephone company and basically get the same deal um, to get the same lines and everything else. But as you pointed out in our previous conversation, the FCC rescinded that understanding, that rule in 2005. That's right. There were 10,000 ISPs, more or less. It's hard to count. There were so many. About 10,000 ISPs in the United States around the turn of the century. And what the FCC and its war on ISPs did is shut the vast majority of them down. What's left, the one corner left alive, is in the wireless space. The wireless ISPs don't depend on Bell circuits. And so I do work in that space myself. I do work with the Wireless ISP Association, which has about 800 active members around the U.S., and so especially in rural areas where, where there are no DSL or cable competitors and the uh, wireless ISPs step in. But in the cities, the available radio spectrum isn't really enough for wireless ISPs to offer total competition. They can offer some competition to some customers, but really because of density reasons, the, the wires are needed. And, and so the urban and suburban ISPs mostly went out of business and competition is really just left in the rural areas. Uh, so yeah, there was no thought of regulating the internet because you regulated the telecom. And in the TCPIP literature, going back to 1978, there was a break between the network and the Internet, IP, Internetwork Protocol, is what ran above the network. You had network meant the wire. You had the network link coming from your bell company with a modem and 
1978, it was a 9600 bit per second modem. And that was expensive. That was telecom and it was understood. When Ethernet came out, that was the network. The internet was the payload of the network. The addressing, and here's the distinction, addressing. Telephone numbers are the, addre- are the namespace of the telephone network. Ethernet has its MAC addresses. Okay, lower layer networks, X25 networks of the 1970s and 80s, they were popular in Europe, had their own address space. And so the underlying network had an address space and an underlying protocol that was not IP. And IP was in the payload of that network, a very, very clear carrier versus payload distinction. The Internet was the payload. Right. So if we if we think about that for a second, you might say, you know, um, the a bus stop is an address. And I as a person get on the bus and the bus doesn't really care who I am or or what my goals are or anything else. It just its goal is to get me from place to place. And then I get off the bus and I have my payload with me and I go about my business. That's right. And if you change buses, the bus A doesn't know you've gotten off and then gotten on bus B to then go off to complete your journey. Uh, But, of course, in the real world, you sometimes have to take more than one bus. And in the Internet, you have to take many networks. It's an inter-network. And so you're going across many underlying networks. But the point is, the original concept of network was neutral, but it wasn't the Internet. You were regulating neutrality because it was common carriage. And common carriage is not allowed to peek at the payload. Common carriage isn't allowed to discriminate among providers. So it worked very well until 2005 when there was real competition. Now, there were issues. I mean, cable companies were never common carriers. Cable companies did not have to make their underlying wire available because they had never been phone companies. That was a very controversial ruling the FCC made. It was legally justifiable. The Supreme Court held it up on kind of narrow grounds that it's a little questionable, but the FCC is the expert agency. It's not outside the possible reading of the law. Perfectly rational there. But the phone companies were always meant to be common carriers. And the people who wrote the Telecom Act of 96, which was written at the beginning of the Internet era, knew full well that there was this distinction between carriage and content. The phone companies offered carriage and the ISPs were content. And the FCC in the 2000s took that away. Now, the trouble there is that once there was no competition, once the, uh, the Bell Company said, we're not making our DSL available, to competing ISPs, and cable never did, the competing ISPs went from having one source of bandwidth to zero. And so the ISPs were cut off and you had a duopoly. Two ISPs in most cities, the phone company and the cable company. And that's not real competition. That's very little competition. Well, when you have very little competition, all sorts of abuse can happen. And the Bells were really looking at doing some things that were really pretty bad. They wanted to charge by the application the way CompuServe did 20 years earlier. They wanted to be able to discriminate bits that were used for video at one price, bits that were used for voice at another price, bits that were used for web browsing at a third price. That was their model. 
And I think just for people's um, edification, one of the problems that I, that I typically have with that is not just that you you know some applications might be discriminated against, uh, but it actually when you start doing that makes it very hard to be innovative because you have to start asking permission and the company has to make a determination of which way to re- which rate are we going to charge you for this new thing you've developed, and it gets it just gets messy in ways that I think are very anti-innovation. Precisely, Chris. They they it very anti-innovative. They wanted to milk the money rather than allow innovation, and that was a real threat. Now, the obvious answer was allow competition. Competition brings innovation, but the FCC in 2005 didn't want competition. The trouble is the term network neutrality was coined in 2005, and instead of being applied to what was the quote-unquote network in old terms, people saw the internet as the network, and people wanted to regulate IP transport. People wanted to regulate ISPs, and let's face it, the bell companies and cable companies were calling themselves ISPs. And so the FCC uh, later, politics made this necessary, came out with rules to regulate ISPs. So now we have this topsy-turvy world where they've deregulated the telephone companies, who are still largely a monopoly, and regulated the ISPs, who are the ones the law was meant to not regulate. And so they've stifled progress. They've decided that the progress that's needed, the rules for quote-unquote network neutrality, are in fact rules of regulate the internet that are designed to allow certain applications to work without discrimination, primarily video. The FCC really wants to make sure Netflix can compete with cable. And this goes back to the stovepipe system at the FCC where the media bureau regulates cable and are absolutely afraid to do anything to open up cable systems per se. And so the Media Bureau regulates cable, and since they don't want to do anything there, they want the Wireline Bureau to open up the internet to carry TV in competition with cable. It's, it's a new cable, an open model cable being done over a medium that wasn't designed for it, the internet. The internet was designed for variable rate, quote-unquote best efforts, data applications, not designed for high bandwidth streaming. But the FCC's neutrality rules were really all about making sure ISPs didn't block Netflix and any competing Hulu and other video services. Right. And I think and, and I think that's because that's where the concern is right now, because there's a lot of investment in those areas and it's a hot topic. And so it's sort of, you know, if, if this had come about at a different time, it might have been YouTube more specifically or it might have been, um, you know, in the future, it might be social networking platforms or something. Um, it, I think to some extent it's hard to say. Um, but I think right now there's a sense that um, the, the video services are so desirable that that's where we're concerned about harms. And I, I think it's really worth pounding this home because I think a lot of people have uh, forgotten it and it's a little confusing. But um, what the FCC did was basically they made a lot of rules that, uh, that govern how ISPs have to behave. And what you would say is that ISPs should be able to behave however they like. 
and the FCC's job should be making sure that anyone that wants to create an ISP has the ability to order the relative, rather than having to lay their own fiber, they can order the service from the telephone company effectively, a physical, a physical service that they can then use to create services. That's right. That's what should have been done, is that the network, meaning the wire and the ground, should have been neutral. Because remember, yes, they're worried about TV competition for programs, but that's one application. By turning the internet into TV, into open cable, if you go back about six, 55 years ago, Newton Minow was the FCC chairman, coined the term vast wasteland to describe programming on TV in the 1960s. I don't know if he's still around, but I would love to know. Like, I, mean, I wonder if his head has just exploded at this point. Well, yeah. And in, in, in fact, I actually coined the term when the FCC was about to revoke Computer 2, that what the Bells wanted to do was turn the Internet into fat waistband, not broadband, but a fat <laughs> waistband. But what they've got instead now is a vaster waistband because they've got you know more TV. But since they're not really making the wires available to innovate on anything but the video content and social network content, the innovation that created video and social networks is restricted because the transport is still someone else's IP. It's monopoly IP service. And IP is a, you know, I say it's a very old protocol that doesn't do everything that uh, people might want to do. But without access to the underlying wires, you can't do anything about it. Now, we see, you know, municipalities, my passion, are doing a lot of things, a lot of different things. Some of them are building open infrastructure, um, making dark fiber available. Some of them are making, um, you know, the network available at, at level two or level three. Um, we see other networks like um, in, in Ammon, Idaho, where they're um, using software-defined networking to try and make um, different slices of the network available. Um, but then we have some municipalities that will say, um, well, you know, we provide open IP and that's we consider that to be open access. And, and you're saying that, in your, that based on our history that that should not be considered open access, that IP is not good enough, that if we really want to solve these problems, we need to have more wires that are open so that different ISPs can use them in their own ways and compete and just innovate and, and all of that. Is that right? Exactly. Exactly. The IP, you know, internet IP services make many, many decisions as how they operate, how they prioritize, how they set parameters that impact the performance. That should be competitive. What the, the physical networks should make it available as a quote unquote layer two service or a layer one service. Now, say, there are some cases in the very small cases in the wireless ISP case, it's sometimes very hard because these are very limited, very small networks and very limited bandwidth. But once, as soon as you have fiber or even some cases wireless, it's possible and not even difficult to make it open. A fiber network should always be operated uh, as an open network. Uh, I do work. Most of my work nowadays is with municipal networks, um, rural municipal networks. And I do recommend that they be open. Uh, but most of the people there don't know what I'm talking about. And when you say open, what do you mean specifically? Well, I mean, they shouldn't just be designed around IP, that there should be the ability to 
offer lower layer services that not just the one ISP service, but other services besides the ISP should be able to use the physical network. What, what kind of a change would one make if, if you originally have a design in which you're going to be the only one offering a quote-unquote internet service to home users and whatnot? How, how do you design it differently to make sure it's open? Well, fundamentally, you have to have the ability to offer a service at a lower layer than IP. So it could be, uh, for instance, Ethernet. If it's an active Ethernet, Ethernet is carrier Ethernet and active Ethernet are um, services that operate below the IP layer, and they are almost inherently open. Uh, with the passive optical network, it can be done, but you have to offer service through the MAC layer. It, it requires designing for that. It's it's In, in the case of wireless and some, uh, I suppose with PON, one can offer VPNs, or the layer two VPN type services that would, again would be below the IP layer and let users do what they want at the higher layer, not be on your, uh, your IP service. It may mean offering quality of service options other than best efforts. It may mean offering committed information rate services to those willing to pay for them because that way they may be able to offer premium services. I think about audio services. I think about being able to do music in high fidelity. It's not huge bandwidth, but it's sensitive to delay in packet drops. And so that's not something that runs well. People do listen to streaming music, but it sometimes doesn't work. And think about a band jamming at a distance. The delays on the internet and buffering make that pretty hard to really work. What if someone wants to offer a low latency, low loss service by which musicians in different places could still feel that they were playing together because the total latency was under 50 milliseconds and the fidelity was good. That should be possible, but you can't do that over the public internet. It works or it doesn't, but there's no control. So that's the kind of innovation I'd like to see available and make that happen by making the lower layer transport services available. It was the rule until 2005, and so pretty much all the equipment can do that, or at least there is equipment that can do that for uh, any medium. And I think it's worth just thinking about that for a second. If you were a company that was specializing in making this service available, um, you know, right now, theoretically, if you wanted to do that, and you and I wanted to purchase this service, that company might have to literally build a fiber connection to our houses. Whereas in the world that, that you are arguing we um, we should live in, the world that we lived in before 2005, that company could have called up the local phone company and said, "How what is the price to get this service to that home? And they would have had a, a simple rate they could get from it and they'd be able to set up their service. And I think we're trying to move back to that world. And in my mind, it's going to start to some extent with these uh, municipalities and really innovative small companies that are also doing this, WISPs in rural areas that I think are, are really progressive thinking about the future of the internet. And they're going to make this available where one could get those sort of that level of access um, without having to figure out how to build a whole new network. That's right. there, And that's what should be. Think about it. You've got a piece of fiber. It has almost infinite capacity. There's enough capacity on a strand of fiber going to a home to make everyone happy. But yet the U.S. Telephone Association, the trade group that represents the Bells, talks about uh, constantly the only real competition means facilities competition, meaning 
pull your own fiber. They want to keep the fiber to themselves. And if you want to offer a high layer service, you have to pull new fiber. That's ridiculous. That's like saying we've got to level the streets, level houses, and put in a new highway in order to have Toyota compete with General Motors. And that's the way the Bell companies are thinking. And they've got an FCC that's sitting there saying, yeah, I guess that's okay. We should have lots of different companies pulling fiber. That's crazy. The FCC, its action, I think we would both agree, has mitigated some of the harm that the, the monopoly providers um, could do. But it's, it's also clear, I think, that if the FCC had gone with that direction, um, they would have had just tremendous pushback. I mean, I think that the kind of fighting we saw on the net neutrality rules that they proposed, uh, we would have seen maybe tenfold increase of lobbying and frustration and anger from the um, the telephone companies if the FCC had uh, moved in that direction. Uh, maybe, maybe not, because in fact, you know, that was the rule until the 2000s. That was the rule that was assumed when the Telecom Act of 96 was written. All we're really calling for is to restore the Telecom Act only 20 years ago to go back to what it intended and follow the rules there. The Bells are spoiled children. They you know, will fight back because they are very lawyer heavy, very lobbyist heavy. But, you know, that's the role of government to regulate. And the case is very strong. That's what should have been, that there should be open networks. And they aren't providing open networks. And the Internet suffers. They're trying to regulate the Internet at a layer that isn't designed to work that way. They're using the wrong tools. Like I say, the arm without an elbow. Because without the layer boundary between the underlying telecom network and the IP network above it, the flexibility of that bending elbow, the flexibility is missing. Vertical integration is always going to cause tension. And what they're doing now is regulating the vertically integrated networks to make sure they're safe for Netflix. But that doesn't mean they're safe for the next thing to come along. They're really harming the potential for future innovation and not really helping bring about uh, competition where it's needed. I think you're right. I mean, well, I, in fact, I would say that I'm strongly in agreement with you. Um, but I wanted to make sure people had a sense of, I think, why the FCC might not be uh, moving in this direction. Even if the FCC did, I think Congress, um, I could imagine Congress being much more vociferous in, in overturning it. And that's because I think the, the telephone companies would go to Congress and say, it's not fair, <laughs> um, which is what everyone says to Congress, I'm sure. Um, but they would say, it's not fair. The cable companies can make all of this money and be closed and we're just like them and we want to be just like them and we should be treated like them. And so, you know, just so people are aware of the political argument that I think is used against this ruling. Um, Now, the other thing that you and I haven't talked about, I think, is just that it is so preferable to have bright line, simple rules as a regulator to enforce rather than very complicated ones. And you're proposing that we go back to a very simple rule that would be easy to enforce. Um, whereas what we have now is a more complicated rule, which is more difficult to enforce and is great for lawyers, perhaps, uh, that have these, um, you know, the, the firms that are representing the companies and whatnot. Uh, but it's really bad for the rest of us. So true. A simple, bright line. I think would be much easier to enforce, much easier to regulate. And I don't think Congress would change it. The Telecom Act of 96 assumed just that kind of bright line. Telecom Act of 96 did have a distinction. The FCC stretched the law 
to get rid of it. And Congress is not Congress is so locked in now they would not uh, be able to overcome their own you know, inability to act just on behalf of the Bells. I think the law wouldn't change. The FCC would be acting within their regulatory authority to open up the networks. Uh, they're just afraid because they don't want to deal with the lobbyists. And, and they don't, frankly, many of them don't understand it anymore. The people who were there in the days of the computer inquiries are gone. The people who understand the importance of layered networks are gone. They're looking at Internet from the top down without understanding the dynamic complexity of the underlying phenomena. They think it's simple, but it's black magic. When David Copperfield goes on stage in Las Vegas and makes something disappear, it looks easy. But he did a lot of prep work for that to happen. The Internet is magic. The Internet is based upon illusion, and the illusion is important. And that's sort of the key that, you know, the FCC really thinks they're sewing a lady in half and putting the lady back together. They don't realize <laughs> there's a mirror there. And net neutrality is all about ignoring that there's a mirror. So, you know, go back to the old rules. We'd have neutrality. We'd have neutrality because if ISP won didn't let you see your Netflix ISP too might. They might charge $5 more because your average use is higher, but they'd make it available and they'd everybody would make money. And maybe somebody who doesn't watch Netflix would get a $20 a month service and somebody with a heavy video service habit would have to pay $65 a month. But if that's what it takes, you know, that's what it costs. Instead, we, we sort of have this one size fits all model that's almost going back to the old telephone monopolies where the telephone network was regulated and, you know, everybody had the plain black phone and paid an extra luxury tax for a colored phone. But the phone was the phone. And the FCC is trying to regulate the Internet like a phone. They just don't understand how the Internet works. So you've got to really focus on what you can do easily. The FCC understands wire. They don't understand IP and they, they shouldn't be the ones to regulate IP. By the way, that does mean the Federal Trade Commission, if it's not the FCC's common carriage, the Federal Trade Commission has the right to regulate abuse of monopoly power by non-common carriers. The FCC has snatched that away from the FTC. There's right now a big question about privacy on broadband networks. Because, again, this was the FTC's expertise. They're the expert agency for privacy. But the network neutrality ruling declared that these broadband Internet access services are now common carriage. And therefore, they're the FCC's exclusive bailiwick. And the FTC lost their authority to regulate the privacy aspects of these networks. And now the FCC is coming in from scratch, trying to apply what little they know about privacy, which basically has to do with telephone bills is really you know, their job. And they're trying to apply the rules for telephone bills to the Internet.
Right. I've seen a, a lot of concern because I think this is a significant area of um, where we need we need to pay a good attention to it. It's not clear to me that the FTC was doing a good job, but that doesn't mean that I think the FCC is necessarily going to just come in and solve all the problems. Um, but we've we've run long once again, and I think um, we've covered a lot of topics really well. Um, and I really appreciate your time for both of these episodes. Well, thank you, Chris. I've enjoyed being here. That was Chris and Fred Goldstein, Principal at Inter-Isle Consulting. We have transcripts for this and other Community Broadband Bits podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter where the handle is at muninetworks.org. Thank you to the group Roller Genoa for their song Safe and Warm in Hunter's Arms licensed through Creative Commons. And thank you for listening to episode 216 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. <laughs>